Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. As per usual, I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and my goodness, do we have an amazing episode for you this week. So far, we haven't really delved too deeply into the world of agave spirits. Things like tequila, mezcal, and other exotic beverages from south of the border, but that's about to change because... Recently, I had the opportunity to sit down with Robin Miller, who's a veteran bartender at Espita Mezcaleria here in Washington, D.C. And to put it mildly, this episode has been a long time coming. So many of our guests have raved about how much they love Mezcal that we just had to make this spirit a priority. Here's what Jamie Winden of Lion Distilling said about it during our rum episode, Lightning Round. I went down to Mexico, and I had no interest in mezcal before this, and I really wasn't that interested in tequila, but I got to visit a lot of mezcal makers, and I love the nuances of it, and I love the way it makes me feel, because I feel like mezcal is a little bit of an upper. So I would take mezcal, yeah, and I think I'd never be bored. That's pretty high praise. And then a couple episodes ago, Maggie Hoffman, author of The One Bottle Cocktail, also had some pretty nice things to say about mezcal. For me, mezcal is cheating. It's so delicious on its own. You know, made from roasted agave, it has a savory flavor and an herbal flavor, and a good bottle of mezcal should absolutely be sipped on its own, but it makes such great cocktails. So as you can see, there was a little teeny bit of pressure on us here at Modern Bar Cart to figure out the right questions to ask about mezcal and the right person to answer them. Luckily, Robin at Espido was able to give us a really awesome crash course. But before we dive in here, I want to give you the opportunity to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Mezcal Mule, or the Oaxacan Mule. And yeah, if you think this is basically a Moscow Mule made with Mezcal instead of vodka, you're right. But there's a couple of reasons why this drinking intrigued me when Robin brought it up during our interview. First, it's starting to warm up here as we transition to spring, and so fresh flavors like ginger and lime are just really exciting right now. And second, there's something about mezcal and a mule that's just a bit uncanny. It takes the drink and makes it just a little bit unrecognizable at first sip, since we're not used to anything quite so smoky or savory in our mule drinks. Usually, it's a clear spirit that takes a backseat to the lime and ginger, so I appreciate the way that Mezcal sort of reorients our understanding of what a mule can taste like. To make one of these, you need, pretty simply, two ounces of Mezcal, one ounce of fresh-squeezed lime juice, and four ounces of ginger beer. And like any mule, you can just build this drink in a Collins glass over ice by adding the liquor and the citrus, and then pouring the ginger beer right on top. Usually I give it a little stir with the straw before I serve it, and if I've got any fresh herbs lying around, I like to smack them around a little bit and float them on top as a garnish. 
I hope some of you get to try this out over the next couple weeks. And if you do, please snap a picture and tag us on Facebook or Instagram at Modern Barkhart because we love seeing your creations and sharing them with our community as well. And now that you're dreaming of Oaxacan mules, let's jump into this amazing interview about Mezcal. Some of the things that Robin and I discuss include distinctions between different agave spirits like tequila and mezcal, and even some varieties you might not have encountered yet. The biology and terroir of agave, particularly how it's cultivated, harvested, roasted, and distilled. What terms and bottle attributes you can look for if you're searching for a quality bottle of mezcal at your local liquor store. How to start working agave-driven cocktails into your home bartending repertoire, and much, much more. Throughout this conversation, I found myself thinking about the relationship between humans and the land and plants we use to create spirits. When you hear Robin describe the way that mezcal distillers tend their agave and lovingly manipulate the forces of nature to protect biodiversity and create completely unique flavors, I think you'll develop a newfound respect for the power and tenderness that go into every bottle of mezcal. And with that, I'll step aside and let you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Mezcal expert, Robin Miller. Robin, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Awesome. So we are sitting here. It's a beautiful spring day in Washington, D.C. We're sitting here at Espita Mezcalaria on 9th Street here Mm -hmm. in Shaw. And I'm hoping that you can just introduce yourself, tell folks a little bit about your background and how you came to be here. Uh, well, my, my name is Robin Miller. I've worked in uh, bars and spirits for almost six, seven years now. I've been focusing on agave the last two years. I've been with Aspita since we opened. Before joining this team, I think I had the the standard cocktail bartender's understanding of agave spirits. You know, you have you have mezcal, sotol, and tequila, and they're all a little bit different. But the nuances were very much kind of uh, uh, murky to me. Working at Aspita was kind of my my trial by fire introduction to it. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a, a wild ride. I've been extremely happy. Yeah, and you're about to uh, launch a new menu, I hear. Uh, yeah, we're releasing our spring menu as we speak, actually. Uh, so full new cocktail menu, nine drinks. We're really excited about it. It's one of our favorites up uh, to date. So definitely come by and check it out. This is a bit of a digression from from what we're about to talk about, but how does one go about designing a cocktail menu? Oh, I think that that's a really good question. Um, I think that you need to first pick a bunch of different styles of drink you want to see listed on your menu. I think that, you know, just throwing a bunch of fun, fun ideas together is cool, but you really have to have a little bit more composition to it. Um, so I'd say you want to have like, you know, one, one crowd pleaser, sweet and sour crushable drink. I'd say you should probably have something that's carbonated, a highball of some sort. Uh, you should have at least one boozy drink, preferably one that's kind of on the sweeter side, one that's on the bitter side, and maybe a third one to, to please martini drinkers if you're feeling so adventurous. And then, you know, you kind of want to be able to hit all these bases so people who like dr- drinks can find something they can identify with. You know, something for the mule drinkers, something for the m- martini drinkers, something for the margarita drinkers. And that's how you kind of can encapsulate the largest audience with only a few drinks. Yeah, that's really interesting. I would love to at some point do an episode on sort of the Myers-Briggs personality types of cocktail drinkers where we <laughs> like get the mule, there's the mule, there's the margarita, which is like, they're kind of similar, but- oh, I could share some stereotypes. <laughs> okay, good. Maybe when we do that, we'll uh, we'll come talk to you again, yeah, but that's, sure. that's really cool. So excited to see what that menu looks like. And we're here today to talk about Mezcal, which is sort of the bread and butter of this establishment 
endorsement. And we'll talk about agave spirits, I guess, more generally, but definitely with mezcal as the focus. So could you just start by defining mezcal, maybe placing it in its place uh, among the rest of agave spirits? Sure. Uh, So mezcal is kind of like the word whiskey when you come to a very general sense of the word mezcal. Mezcal is the loose word used for anything distilled from agave. So it's, it's a very, very general term in that sense. More specifically, in its legal term, mezcal uh, is legally defined as an agave distilled spirit produced in one of nine states in Mexico, following the criteria to be called a mezcal. That criteria typically th- is things like double distilled, uh, things like, um, I mean, there, there's, there's many, many, many things that would define a mezcal. Part of it is uh, no industrialization of the process, um, you know, or at least limited. Uh, there's a lot of leeway as far as mezcal goes. Uh, but, you know, using one of the many different species of agave, using traditional methods of roasting, and, you know, it, it's it's this kind of step-by-step, just like how cognac or champagne have their legal definitions that define them, so does mezcal. So it's kind of this, this tricky word. Interesting. Yeah. The, the, when I was uh, doing an episode a while back, kind of talking about uh, quality designators in spirits. Mm-hmm. You know, with Cognac, they have the VS, VSOP, XO mm-hmm. kind of system. I, I ended up kind of coming to the conclusion that agave spirits also have a very similar... Uh, it's true. Of, yeah. Um, so you have, a, you have a legal definition for tequila, a legal definition for sotol, a legal definition for mezcal, a legal definition for ricea, and bacanora as well. Um, so these are all different. They, they, they call them, uh, you know, um, DOCs or, you know, uh, basically control laws to regulate just to protect the, the, the integrity of the product. Yeah. And just for folks listening out there, DOC is, is a French kind of Italian French word mm. for denomination origine uh, controle is, yeah. is the, the French. Uh, and, and that's basically like if you if you ever see a, a bottle of imported French or Italian wine, chances are there's going to be a little seal on the top usually that or, or um, you know or maybe a listing on the label that, that says a specific DOC, and it means it has been approved as definitely hitting all of the criteria and not being sort of a copycat mm. or knockoff, basically. Exactly. Cool. So we we mentioned agave, and maybe we should start by backing up and and looking exactly at what this plant is, because I don't know what it looks like. I just know that it's a thing that that tequila and mezcal are made of. What is agave? So uh, agave is kind of that almost um, iconic desert plant that you see in lots of movies. You'll see it's long, bladed, thick leaves uh, bunched together to create kind of almost like a crown. And there's many different species of agave. These these come in all shapes and sizes. They predominantly grow in the southwest U.S. or Mexico, but they have been known to grow other places. They are dinosaur plants. They're they're literally prehistoric in their in their DNA, uh, and they've survived this long. And over this period of time, like I said, they've they've mutated and developed many different strains for their terroir locality. So it's this very dense, fibrous, starchy plant with these long, spiny leaves. When you're creating a spirit from it, uh, your first goal is to cut off all those leaves as close to the piña. That's what they call the head or the heart. The, this, the part you're going to use to make your spirit, cut off all those leaves as close to the piña as possible to keep the other bad flavors out. And then you can pull that out of the ground and then you have your perfect agave head or your agave piña is what they call it. And again, based on the species, it can be, uh, you know, the size of a soccer ball or, you know, the size of a wrecking ball, depending on where it's from. Uh, so there's a lot of variety based on where things are coming from. Interesting. And can people kind of think of the piña versus the leaves almost like an artichoke style where the That's inside a great is the comparison, heart. Yeah. Um, but the, the center of agave is extremely dense though. It's very, very hard. It's almost like wood. 
Um, so the, the process, you actually have to roast it to make it soft enough, convert those starches to sugars. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself getting into the process of production, but it's, it's a pretty fascinating thing. Yeah. So we have these plants and we've also incidentally been talking about terroir quite a bit on the podcast recently. Uh, and so basically what you're saying is, you know, one of the things that people don't really realize is that Mexico is like the U.S., a country made up of states and in these states, there tend to be different climates, different soil types. And so you're saying that these are going to affect the ultimate flavor experience of the agave? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, you, you got to remember, we talk about terroir and wine. How long is the growing season for wine before you harvest grapes? Do you know? Uh, it's usually a year, right? Or it's six months, right? It's, it's not that long. Yeah. Uh, the shortest maturation period for an agave plant before you can harvest it is typically between two and four years. So just think about that. That's the shortest. So you're spending two to four years out in this climate, you know, getting hit by natural, uh, you know, all the natural climate conditions, uh, whether there's a drought, whether there's, uh, you know, an orchard nearby, you know, there's all these things that are going to influence the different aspects of your plant. Um, so terroir is way more important to uh, mezcal than almost any other spirit. Uh, when you think about it like that, uh, again, two to four years is the shortest maturation period. The longest maturation period can be anywhere between 30 and 40 years Wow! Uh, before you can harvest one of these agaves to make a spirit from it. So they spend a lot of time in this environment. So you can imagine they pick up a lot of flavor qualities. Yeah, that's a long time for a plant to be sucking up the minerals in the soil, the water quality, the, exactly. the weather. That's really interesting. I did not know that coming in. So are mezcal agave plants farmed in kind of like a plantation style that we would be familiar with, or are they kind of a little bit more naturally occurring on a plot of land? Um, so there's, there's two ways you can look at that. Both are correct. But I think the, the, the important thing to remember is that one of the things that makes agave or mezcal special versus tequila is that agave for the most part, and this isn't demonizing all tequila or making all tequila or all mezcal, you know, awesome. But for the most part, mezcal is much more focused on natural production. Um, so that means natural reproduction of the plant. With tequila, you may have heard of them creating clones from the, from the root shoots. You're creating a perfect genetic clone of that plant when you do that, which leaves it susceptible to things like plagues or insects or all sorts of problems that could arise which is why we so often hear about these, these issues with agave shortages because they have you know, massive plagues that wipe out agave crops because it's all the same genetic plant. Uh, with mezcal, they let these agave plants uh, reproduce naturally, which promotes biodiversity, which makes them kind of create these natural pesticides or these natural immunities to these, these, these diseases or funguses that wipe out plants. So it's a much more natural process for the most part. Um, right. You will see them grown in neat rows, but they will not all be the same size. Like if you're going to the Cuervo uh, facility or something like that, these are plants are going to be varying sizes because they harvest them when they're ready. You'll see holes in the line where they actually remove the right plants. So that's the other thing that distincts the two is that um, mezcal will always wait or good mezcal should always wait for the plant to be mature. And you know that because it'll tell you by sending out a sentinel flower shoot. You snip that and then you allow it to engorge because all the sugars that it would have spent to send that sentinel flower 15 feet in the air it gets stuck inside that head and it'll swell and engorge. And that's how you get it ready to be harvested. Wow. Tequila, typically they don't wait for that. Tequila, they clear cut a field and they plant it all at the same time with different genetic clones. And so that's why you'll see in Jalisco, especially the agave fields are all uniform. Whereas if you go to places in Oaxaca, usually there's a lot of variance in their field. It'll be in a pretty straight line, but the, the plants are on different growth cycles. Really, really fascinating. The sentinel flower, I had no clue that that was something that is typical of agave plants. Oh, it's a big deal. In fact, people don't realize they have agave on their property when they live in the U.S. and in the Southwest. They, they just see 
uh, know that we have a pretty desert plant in our yard and it sends out a flower every few years. Like they don't realize that it's actually a subspecies of agave of some sort. Really? Okay, cool. Well, it's, it, that's a really amazing kind of intersection of humans and nature. I think it's where we see this thing and then we kind of interfere in the process in the same way that a grape grower is going to interfere in the natural process of, you know, how many grape clusters are on a vine. And the result is this amazing, uh, perfect primed sugar base that we're then going to roast and make our spirit out of. I love that story. Can you take us on that journey after the agave is harvested? Sure. You harvest the agave and then you take it back to your palenque. Palenque is the word they use for the, the, the production facility, the distillery. Uh, you take it back and then you will throw them into your horno. Uh, your horno is the traditional oven. It's a conical oven or basically a cone-shaped hole in the ground. Uh, varying sizes, but typically I say about 15 feet across, 15 feet deep. And they're typically layered with rock around the outside of the cone to help insulate it and create a real oven. And they've been burning wood at the base of that, at the tip of this cone for a few days. So where it's kind of just embers now. And they start by layering on spent agave pulp from previous distillations on those coals to help create a nice fuel base. So you get the fire going for a few days. And they'll roll all the agave heads, all the piñas, down into this oven. Uh, typically, they'll cover it with uh, palm fronds and then dirt. Uh, sometimes it's harp, sometimes metal, a corrugated you know, aluminum or metal to help insulate it. And that oven will get up to 500, 600 degrees, and it'll stay that way for you know, five, six, seven days. And so they let it sit there, and essentially this process is converting all those complex carbohydrates into simple carbohydrates, much like scotch. And this is a linearity that I always try and draw for people who are unsure or unfamiliar with the process of, of agave distillation, uh, where when you're, when you're making scotch, you roast the barley with peat in an effort to convert those starches to sugars so that you can then ferment. With mezcal, it's very much the same. We're using an open flame source of fire to convert those complex carbs to sugars in the agave. Once that is done, they unbury them, pull them all out, and they put them in one of many different ways to crush them or pull them apart. Some people use mechanical shredders. Some people use tahonas, which is a giant stone wheel pulled by a horse. Some people use mallets or hammers, uh, and they kind of crush them in like a, like a hole or a dugout. But there's a lot of different ways to crush your agave. Essentially, what you're trying to do is pull apart those fibers uh, so that they can ferment more effectively. And so you take those, those now crushed agave pieces, put them in a fermentation tank, and this is another part that makes it very unique, is that uh, with mezcal or good mezcal, or mezcal produced the correct way, they don't inoculate with yeast. They only allow wild yeast to spur fermentation. Um, sometimes they'll do things like putting the bark of trees in there to kickstart the fermentation, but they're not actively injecting any type of yeast into it. They want to promote those wild yeast. Wild yeast, as we know, are prolific in, uh, in uh, esters and other fun flavors when it comes to fermentation. So you create these really complex flavor profiles that other spirits don't even have a chance to, to have because you have these really fun wild yeasts. Right. Uh, they say when you inoculate, you have an average of between four and eight strains of yeast in your fermentation. With wild yeast fermentation, you're typically looking at between 40 and 60. So you can imagine all the complexities of flavor that come from that process. Right. It's very, um, it's almost like a DNA footprint exactly. of the area. Uh, and it, it's, it's even more interesting because it becomes almost vintage because no, no two harvests will give you the same yeast. Uh, you'll have similar ones, but you'll have a very unique flavor profile because of that. Now, the next step that allows the mezcalero or the palenquero to put his fingerprint on this production is his choice of water when it comes to his fermentation. Are you using river water? Are you using well water? Are you using city water? Where is this water coming from? In regions like Miahuatlan, where they have a very dense soil bed that's uh, layered with minerals, 
using well water is preferred because you end up giving it a very soft mineral driven flavor profile in your mezcal, but based on your water choice. So there's just, there's so many ways that the hand of the maker can influence your final product and create a very unique, very vintage product that will, that you will say, oh, this is batch 11. This is a very good batch. Oh, this is batch 13. It's fine, but it's less masculine than batch 12. You begin to see these patterns when when you're talking about specific brands and it becomes this very nerdy subject, much, much more than many other spirits, which is why it's so fun. Yeah, absolutely. When these, you said the fibers, what does it look like? Because I feel like a lot of people understand what a what a mash looks like for a spirit. It sounds like mezcal mash, if you can uh, call it that, is going to look a little bit different. What do those fibers look like? Oh, well, yeah. You were talking about a mash bill when it comes to distilling uh, grain spirits. So you have grain. The only way I can really describe it is if you've ever seen like a, a very unripe pineapple where it's not juicy, it's very fibrous. That's the, that's kind of the texture we're talking about, but then you roast it and you can kind of pull it apart. And these fibers are strong. In fact, they're so strong, they make paper. They use them to make adobe bricks. They use them to make rope. Um, so it's kind of this big thing. And after they kind of do that fermentation, I'm sorry, do you want me to continue with the process? I totally forgot we didn't finish it. Yeah, sure. All right, so during your fermentation, you put your water, put it in an open, an open air vat, and you'll hear it bubbling, which is kind of the amazing part. And it creates a very dense shell on top. And you have to eventually, when you hear it stop bubbling, that's how you know it's done fermenting. You crack that shell and then you shovel all the fermented agave into your stills now. So you're either using copper pot stills, alembic stills, clay pot stills, or Filipino stills. Uh, so there's a bunch of different ways you can distill. Again, another place the hand of the maker comes into play for choosing how they want their mezcal to taste. Then they do the traditional distillation where they may do two, dis- two distillations and they create cuts. Uh, and one thing that makes mezcal unique again is they blend their cuts back together to a certain extent, which is very unique. A good mezcal will not add water to, a, to, to some degree. They're going to be blending their heads and tails back into their heart to achieve a palatable ABV. And what that does is, again, increase flavor. You're adding all these interesting uh, characteristics from the oils that are in the tails to the, the high notes that are in the heads, creating a very complex, very three-dimensional spirit. So there's a lot that goes into it, and that's that's how you reach your final product. Are there so. any risks in there? Uh, I know that a lot of people who understand the process of heads and tails very basically understand it as the distiller taking all the bad stuff out of the liquor. That is a very basic understanding of it, yes. So, uh, so the dangerous parts are going to be the very, 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 very first part of your heads. We were talking about parts per million of the dangerous uh, t- types of alcohol that come from distillation. They are well within the, the safe range. I, I've never met a blind mezcalero, I'll tell you that. And I've, <laughs> I've met quite a few. Nice. Uh, so they're, they're very good at what they do. But the tails, if you've ever had tails before, it almost tastes like like rice wine. It's got these very oily, interesting characteristics. But the idea is when you blend it with that, like I said, those high notes of the, of the heads and the nice, rich part of the heart, you really just create a better thing. And uh, they're, part of why they do this is they're all about conserving and using every part of the plant and not throwing anything out to a certain extent. And they'll drink parts of the heads uh, and call it the puntas by itself. And it's just the heads. That's all you drink. And uh, the, the tails they refer to as shishé or ordinario. And so they, they will drink those separately. It's kind of this use everything mentality, like no waste. It's kind of neat. Right. It's almost an inverse of, uh, you know, like uh, a lot of the bourbon mentality here in the U.S. where it's like, let's make the smoothest, most innocuous tasting thing that we can possibly make so that more people will drink it with the kind of assumption that people want something that's smooth to and the neutral? point of water. Yeah. So that's kind of the big difference in the tequila industry and the mezcal industry. For many, many, many years, the tequila industry, to, to put it bluntly, tries to make just tried to make agave vodka, uh, where they're stripping away as many flavors and characteristics as possible. Whereas mezcal is celebrating all that stuff, so it's kind of like 
the, the other side of the sword, uh, which I kind of why I love it. It's a much more natural, beautiful process. And it's got historical relevancy in Mexico. They've been producing it the same way for thousands of years, quite literally thousands of years. Archaeological evidence has proved that, that it is potentially the oldest spear on earth, going back as far as 3,500 years, making you know single distilled spirit way back when. It's, it's pretty amazing stuff. So it's, it's got a lot more of this romantic history to it too. Right. When people go out to the store because they get inspired by a podcast or a bar that they've visited and had an amazing mezcal drink. They want to go to the store and pick up a bottle. We were talking about those DOC terms or perhaps some of these uh, designations of quality. Mm -hmm. uh, what, are, what are some of the ways that people can identify the type or quality of mezcal that they're looking at just from a word or two on the bottle? So if you want to look a little bit harder, the the mezcal correct term would be like a nom, N-O-M. Like the nom on the mezcal will tell you all the information about it. So you can actually look up the nom based on the brand and it'll tell you everything about the production cycle if you really want to uh, get really nerdy about it. If you just want to have some quick things you can look at to determine, I think the most important thing to remember is no good mezcalero will put his mezcal in something that is more expensive than the juice. So don't get anything with big, fancy, thick bottles. Pay attention. Like the more ordinary it looks, probably the better it is for the most part. Uh, you want to look at the ABV. Anything above 43% is a good sign. The, they don't. Most mezcals will not, or good mezcals will not water themselves down below 43, just as a, as a point of pride. People who enjoy aged agave spirits, uh, that's, that's also a fine thing. Uh, traditionally, mezcal is unaged. Aging is definitely something that the United States, or rather the Spanish, introduced in the, uh, when they came over from uh, Europe. So that's not as traditional. So unaged mezcal, I think, is always a, a plus, but I do enjoy me some repos and añejos every once in a while. Also, see what kind of information is available in the bottle. When they're talking about the village that it's from, the year that it's produced, the agave species involved in the production, uh, whether what kind of still they're using, you know that they're paying attention to the details. And that's a really important uh, delineation between quality and you know non-quality, really. People who just you know slap a label on it and have the ABV and you know where it's from, like that's not enough. People who care about mezcal and agave want to know everything. And so that's a very good way to, to see things. Uh, look at brands like Vago, for example, where they have every little bit of information on it. Or, um, you know, Ricea's by Lavanosa. They have so much information on the back of the bottles. Those are, that's, that's how you really know that they care to, to educate you. What about price points? Because uh, I feel like mezcal can get pretty high compared to certain other bottles that you're going to come across at the liquor store. So how do we know uh, that we're getting a good deal on a bottle of Mezcal? Well, like I said, the fancier the bottle, the more you're getting ripped off. It's going to have better juice, the more ordinary it looks. Uh, so I would say as far as price range, if you're looking at anything under 30 bucks a bottle, not all the time, but sometimes I would probably question it. One of my favorite uh, Mezcals for me to get when I'm uh, not working is uh, El Bujo. El Bujo Espadine is a very reasonably priced bottle. I think it's in like the, the low 40s, high 30s. And their Espadine is the one that I usually get. And it's great for cocktails, great for sipping, very reasonably priced. And uh, it's a brand that has a lot of integrity. They're doing all the right things, doing all the responsible things as far as their production methods, You know, doing things that are sustainable and good for the agave culture. So I like them a lot. That's, that's a good one to recommend, I think, especially cool. people getting into Mezcal uh, initially. But don't stop at El Bujo because El Bujo's their Espadine, I would say it's a little bit more on the on the masculine smoky side. And there's such a broad spectrum of flavor that comes from Mezcal. Based on all the things I described earlier, the terroir, the different methods of production, you can have things that are fruity, things that taste like celery, things that taste like slate and sand and mud. Like there's such a broad, you know, spectrum of flavor within Mezcal. So don't don't get stuck on one brand. Try a lot of them out because you end up finding a lot of fun stuff. 
Absolutely. I think one of the biggest uh, presences out there in terms of like starter bottles that I've come across, and I think this has to do with their recent acquisition by a major kind of conglomerate is Del Maguey Vita. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's a a green bottle. It's a really good starter bottle, especially if you're making cocktails. Maybe not if you're, you're, you know, sipping and, and trying to get the full nuances of it, but that's definitely one of those sub 40 bottles that a lot of people out there have behind the bar, particularly for cocktails. Yeah, Vita is a great bottle for that. Um, the only, I, I one of the things that it, characteristics that it has that people uh, look for is that it has a very smoky, pervasive flavor so that you really know you're drinking mezcal in a cocktail, uh, which is great for mezcal margaritas and stuff like that. I think a lot of people look for that, uh, but there's so much more nuance out there. Look, I mean, even within the Delmagay portfolio, they have a lot of very cool, unique expressions. Uh, they, they make a tequiliana, which is neat. They're basically making a mezcal using agave blue weber which is used for tequila production that's uh, a really fun one that i like from them and then they have their chichicapa is notorious for being a fantastic sipping mezcal so within the delmagate portfolio alone there's a lot of other options but the, but the vita you're right is perfect price range for cocktails yeah and we definitely want to get into a couple of cocktails here since this is a home bartending podcast but one quick question that i do have is is uh and this is something that i only have a very spectral knowledge of you mentioned initially when we were talking about the different types of agave spirits, we have tequila, we have mezcal, we have sotol, and then you listed another one. Bacanora. So, Bacanora. Can you talk a little bit about sotol and Bacanora? Just because I know I haven't heard of Bacanora and most people I'm sure have not even heard of sotol. Sure. So sotol is really cool. Essentially, you're using a, a species of agave called the desert spoon plant. It's uh, much more dense than other agave species, and it, it grows in different parts of Mexico. I think typically in higher altitude, it's a little more hardy of a plant. And you'll find it, uh, you, one of the most interesting things about it is that most of the time when you're harvesting agave, as I mentioned, you wait for the, the sentinel flower, you snip that, and then you're ready to go. You let it engorge and you harvest the whole plant, and, but then the plant is dead. With Sotol, it can mature five times and be harvested up to five times in its lifetime before it, it, it's kind of done. Uh, and it's over a 50-year span, which is pretty fascinating. So it's this plant that just keeps on giving. Uh, Sotol is a flavor. Uh, I think has much more like a musky funk to it while also having very bright green notes. It's mm. it's a very interesting spirit. It's the, the nom for Sotol, I believe it was uh, – it's three states currently, but it was traditionally only Chihuahua. So you'll see most Sotols coming from Chihuahua. Yeah, it's, it's kind of neat. As you, The thing that I kind of like about Sotol the most though – is when you get out of the regulated states where it's supposed to be produced, I've actually found a lot more sotols that I like a lot because they're so unique. And in Oaxaca, when they make a mezcal from Desert Spoon Plant, they call it Cucharillo or Little Spoon. And it's uh, it's really, really cool. Lots of fun, like bright, fruity acid notes, really fun, like savory. Like it's it's really, really a cool, cool thing. Nice. Uh, so I love sotol. Bacanora is from the Sonora state. Uh, I think it also it can be produced in one or two others. I don't I don't remember off the top of my head, unfortunately. That's, I, that's actually a blind spot in my knowledge that I, I intend to correct very soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Bacanora, again, is just a different type of agave distillado. Uh, that, and that's kind of just the loose term you use for it. It uses you know, very similar production methods. Similar, uh, the, the, there's not like a single species of agave you can make with it. Uh, it's kind of broad, just like mezcal. It's just another regional style of mezcal. I think a good uh, maybe cross comparison would be sparkling white wine. You've got champagne is from champagne. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, Prosecco is spark white, 
sparkling wine dry from Italy, mm-hmm. very similar characteristics, slightly different grape varietals in many cases. So uh, in the same way that you have a bunch of different types of white sparkling wines that all have their own names out there, very similar thing with agave plants. It's just, but it's a, Oh, it's very real. I find yeah. myself drawing comparisons to wine all the time. I mean, like so far to the extent of you can have, you know, when you're talking about the species of agave versus species of grapes, you can have an Espadine agave from Oaxaca taste very, very, very different from an Espadine from any other state, just like a Sauvignon Blanc from France will not taste the same as a Sauvignon Blanc from California. So it, the, the terroir matters so much. People always try and draw these kind of almost pointless boundaries when it comes to tequila, Highland versus Lowland. It's like, well, yeah, that does matter to a certain extent, but within the Highland or Lowland realm, there's so many other variables to affect your flavor profile that people are almost making these like baseless designations because it, it, there, there's so many other variables that come into play beyond just you know Highland or Lowland. Uh, and it's, 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 that's why Mezcal is so nuanced and cool to me is that there's, there's never an end of the learning. You know, every, every village has their own unique touch they put on their spirit. Every, every region has a different climate, a different, you know, elevation, different rainfall. You know, if you grow up closer to an orchard, you're probably going to have a lot more unique flavors because of the uh, DNA exchange that happens when pollination, like those things really do matter and they come into play. Uh, and that's why Mezcal is such a fun, nuanced thing. Yeah. I definitely think uh, those of you listening out there who are just coming to Mezcal, I think it's great to get those one or two things that are your access points, right? So the type of Mezcal, whether it's going to be a, do they call the unaged Mezcal Hoven? It is Hoven, yeah. J-O-V-E-N. Think the word juvenile. And, you know, so do you want an unaged? Do you want something that was lightly aged, like a that's called a reposado? Or do you want something that's been aged a long time that's going to be closer in flavor profile to your bourbons and your other whiskeys like an Añejo? Those are the same types of age designators as tequila. So those are, that's a really easy access point. And then of course, you know, if there's tasting notes on the bottle, maybe speaking to somebody at your liquor store, these are going to be the best access points to it. Uh, but I think a great point is that once you get past the access point, there's almost no end to the nuance. Oh, it's super fun. And honestly, the, the best way I'd say to find a bottle for you is to go to a local tequila or mezcal bar and ask them. And, uh, the, I think the, the best thing they can ask you is what do you normally drink? And whether it's gin, whether it's scotch, whether it's bourbon, whether it's vodka, we can find something for you based on all those things because there is such a broad spectrum of flavor. Right, right. Okay, before we get into lightning round here, can we just talk mezcal cocktails? Oh, sure, absolutely. And and or agave. Let, let's start with just agave in general. The big agave spirit cocktail, where it all started at the bar, so to speak, is the margarita. Mm-hmm. Talk about the margarita. How do you make your margaritas? <laughs> uh, so at our bar, we make ours with a uh, amber agave syrup, amber agave syrup with um, fresh squeezed lime juice. We use Jaffard triple sec, partly because we really like the flavor, but also because it's 40% ABV. And we think that really gives it a nice kick. Uh, and then we use El Bujo Espadine Mezcal, agave, lime, triple sec, and mezcal. And then we actually rim it using sal de gusano, which is a salt made from roasted ground agave worms and chilies. So it's kind of savory, it's spicy. The cocktail's sweet and sour, so it kind of opens up your whole palate. It's just really addicting. All right, so how did we miss the worm? <laughs> we got to talk about the worm All right, so now. the worm is kind of like a tourist thing, I think, because uh, when you go to Oaxaca, yes, you will eat bugs all the time. There's grasshoppers tossed in every kind of season you can imagine in the marketplace, and you eat them like potato chips by the pound, and they're delicious. But the worm in the bottle, I think, is fairly a touristy thing. I've never had a mezcal with a worm in it that I liked. I'll say that. Okay. Um, 
That being said, they do intentionally drown bugs in some mezcal for medicinal qualities. Let's not get into that because it's super weird, but also awesome. I had scorpion mezcal where they actually drown thousands of scorpions in it, and the venom actually settles your stomach. Because oh. when they die, they release the venom or something. It was, oh, man. It was pretty good. All right. But that anyways, is, that is suspect. Yeah, I would yeah. hope that that's, that's, uh, the, the U.S. Customs has, <laughs> has prevented that from getting on too, too many shows. So cocktails. The margarita is obviously super cool. Uh, most popular cocktail in the world. One that I think is super basic that anyone can enjoy is the mezcal mule. Uh, ginger and lime go hand in hand with mezcal. And I think it's a really easy cocktail to crush. One of my favorite cocktails to do with it, with it is uh, a variation on a mezcal Negroni. Uh, we call it an estocada. So this is a combination of mezcal with rhubarbero amaro. Currently, we're using Fernet Francisco's rhubarbero and Coqui Rosa Americano. Play with the proportions to find what you like, um, but we think that that is uh, a very, very, very good equivalent, if not superior cocktail to the Negroni. One of the things I really love about mezcal is that because it's a clear spirit, you can sub it out for a clear spirit. And because it also has those smoky notes, it's really easy to sub it out for a whiskey. So, you know, the Negroni Boulevardier thing there is really good. You can make a mezcal old fashioned. Basically, if you're if you pick up a bottle of mezcal, my recommendation would be the first thing to do with it in the cocktail room would be to sub it in for your favorite erstwhile cocktail that has something else. Oh, absolutely. Um, one thing we love to do is uh, I like to pair it with other into other spirits into a split base, particularly rum. I love doing like a split base uh, rum and mezcal daiquiris, maybe a little bit of Smith and Cross with a white rum and mezcal. Super fun. Or, uh, you know, all sorts of things like that really do work. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now you got my mind racing. One of the last things I want to mention, because my favorite cocktail is the last word, is there's a really great cocktail out there called Last of the Oaxacans, which is basically just a mezcal last word where you've got everything in a last word. You've got the maraschino, you've got the lime, you've got the green chartreuse, and you just sub in the mezcal for the gin, and you've got a really nice smoky take on the last word. Yeah, I think that that cocktail is, I haven't heard Last of the Hawkins as the name. I think I've heard it typically as a, a parabola finale. Oh, okay. So like the last word. Right. Um, but no, that's absolutely a great drink. I, I love that one too. We do a, a fun one here called the Naked and Shameless uh, that we really like. It's a, it's a play on the Naked and Famous, obviously. But yeah, again, it's, it's just being careful with your substitutions and finding what works. Right. I really liked what you said too about blending mezcal with other spirits. So if you you've got a if you've got a daiquiri or something because a lot of mezcals tend to be very aggressive or smoky or aggressive and estery, mm-hmm. uh it's it's good to, you know, maybe instead of using a full-on mezcal and losing the character of that cocktail with its original spirit, you just add a little bit in there and cut down on the base spirit a little bit. I think that's a really good piece of advice for people to start playing around with at home. Oh, for sure. Cool. Are uh, you ready to jump into some lightning round questions? Sure. All right. What is your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite cocktail of all time, what's something you've been recently obsessed with? Anything that's Negroni oriented. Bittersweet has always been my, my, one of my favorites. Um, so yeah, that's, that's an easy answer for me. Amazing. I really like that you uh, dropped in the Rhubarbaro. Yeah, Rhubarbaro Amaro is dope. Yeah. Uh, it's a whole style of Rhubarbaro Amaro made uh, in Italy or from Italy originally. Uh, and yeah, Fernet Francisco just released a new one that they weren't producing until very recently. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty tasty. Yeah, I just acquired a bottle for the first time a couple months ago, and that's been really fun to play with. So Rhubarbaro yeah. Amaro is definitely one of those ingredients that you should be on the lookout if you're looking to try something bitter and different. So we got the favorite cocktail. What is your favorite spirit? Is that maybe a little bit of an obvious question? Yeah, dude. I mean, like, I honestly, when I, when I started working here, it was, it was definitely rye whiskey. Um, it's definitely mezcal now. Mezcal is by far my favorite. Nice. 
And rye, I mean, to be fair, rye is a great place to come to Mezcal from, oh, right? For sure. High proof, spicy, fun flavors. Yeah. Uh, makes sense. Yeah. And it's it's definitely, you know, it, it was sort of the, I guess, antagonist to bourbon in a similar way that Mezcal is. Tequila. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a yeah. great way to, that's a great comparison. I hadn't thought about that, but that works. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, are there any books about Mezcal or agave or cocktails that were particularly influential for you as you were learning about this stuff? Uh, so when it comes to cocktails in general, I think that if anyone has a passion for cocktails or works in the works in bars and wants to get more into cocktails, uh, the best place to start is Jeffrey Morgenthaler's bar book. Nothing gave me more definition and you know boundaries as that book. It taught me so much about measuring the the importance of consistency, understanding science of sugar, uh, dilution. It was very very helpful. A little bit more advanced to be obviously Liquid Intelligence by Dave Arnold. It's, it's almost a, a must have if you're in the industry these days. When it comes to agave spirits, Megan Barnes had me read this book when she hired me called Spirits Divided by Sarah Bowen and. It's a good read because it's more it's less about the history of mezcal but more about the legal history of tequila and mezcal. And it's very hard to understand the the struggle that's happening in the agave world without understanding the legal turmoil uh, that the definition of tequila or mezcal is in and goes through all the time because it's this constant fight between like potentially corrupt government affiliate like uh, interference in these worlds in order to make money and staying true to your history and your culture. Uh, and so, again, Spirits Divided is very eye-opening when it comes to that. Probably don't read it unless you're really ready to hate tequila for a long time because <laughs> uh, it does change your opinion on it. But it was a very, very good read. Yeah. I really am fascinated by the kind of – it's a polarized debate, right? Do we want more – regulation or do we want less regulation and what are the consequences of that within different spirits industries? Oh, uh, for sure. And I think there's a lot to be said. I, I believe that certain, I could be wrong with it. I, th I think that certain bourbon geographic restrictions were lifted or made a little bit easier recently. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing more bourbons pop up outside of the state of Kentucky. You know, so th there's, there's always a conversation to be had and, you know, knowing what has happened previously in these legal regulatory matters is really important to understanding what's literally sitting in front of you in the bottle at the bar today. Yeah. I mean, like people have to change their brand in order to fit these guidelines. So just think about that. Like the spirit that their great, great grandparents taught them how to make is being adulterated so that it can get a sticker on the side of the bottle, to say that it's good. Like just ponder that for a minute and realize how much history we're losing. Uh, there's actually a lot of mezcals out there that refuse to be certified as mezcal. They have to refer to as agave distillados because they don't want to change. They'd rather stay more traditional. They'd rather have a harder or more strict production style than adhere to these standards or even pay the money to have them done. We have mezcals here that where it's like, honestly, it's not worth it to fly a guy out here to certify us where he has to, we have to put him up in a hotel. We live in the sticks. We don't make that much money. Like he has to be here for a few days to a week testing all of our mezcal. Like we don't want to deal with that. Like forget it. It's cheaper for us to just not do it and sell it as an agave distillado then actually go through that trouble. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So we will link to all of those books in the show notes so that folks can go and find them online and read them themselves. Uh, last question here in the lightning round is, what piece of advice do you have for somebody who is just starting out on their journey as a home bartender who might want to do one of two things? A, start getting more into Mezcal or B, just kind of like general advice to help be a better bartender because you are obviously a professional bartender. I, I dabble, yeah. I think that um, if, you're, if you're getting into mezcal, I think a good piece of advice would be 
don't be afraid to just sip it. You know, everyone wants to put mezcal in cocktails. And I, I love that. I think it's very cool. Truthfully, I think people would be appalled if they knew the kind of mezcal we put in cocktails sometimes when they're, when they're making it. The producers would be upset because they didn't make it for that. They made it to be enjoyed by itself. And there's nothing wrong with making a cocktail. But just remember that this is, this is part of their history, their ancestry. Like it's a very, very important thing to them. And they don't make it for cocktails. They, they're intended to be sipped. So don't be afraid just to sit back and enjoy a nice mezcal. You should treat it just like scotch or, or bourbon. Uh, you know, um, probably not in the rocks. It's not usually encouraged in mezcal culture. Um, but uh, no, enjoy it that way. When it comes to home bartenders, honestly, the best piece of advice I can give you, read. Read as much as you can. Educate yourself because there's so much information out there that has never been available before. Uh, and where we live in a very good time to learn about the complexities of of mixing drinks and the science and chemistry of cocktails. Right. And listen to my damn podcast too. Yeah, there you uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. Well, Robin, thanks so much for being on the show. How can folks get a seat at the bar at Espita or uh, contact Espita for questions about Mezcal or hit you up on, you know, oh, sure. social media? Uh, so Espita, we're open uh, uh, every day. Uh, on weekdays, four o'clock. Uh, weekends, we do brunch at 1030. Um, but yeah, come on in. Come check us out. We do happy hour every day between four and six. Then we have late night happy hour from 10 till close. We're here. My, uh, my contact information is robin at espitadc.com. Feel free to email me any questions you have about Mezcal or cocktails. And then uh, you can hit me up on Instagram at robinzomg. Nice. And just for anybody listening in DC, Espita is right on 9th Street. It's a little bit north of the Mount Vernon Square and Convention Center, maybe like two or three blocks north of that. It's right across the street from Union Kitchen Grocery, and it's near all of those lovely Shaw High Points like Blagden Alley. Yeah, we are on uh, the Blagden Alley block. Yes. Fantastic. Robin, thanks again. Hey, no problem. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.
This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, amazing Mezcal expertise by Robin Miller, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.